Hi, I'm Samuel. And I'm Bentley. And this is the Re-View Podcast. So, I sometimes have to beg and plead to pull us back to some of the black and white movies that I have uh, loved uh, as a lover of film, which I think is the heart of the Review Podcast idea. And I successfully got one in this weekend with Samuel by pitching it this way. It's Die Hard in Suburbia. I know, right? It's beautiful. This is The Desperate Hours, starring Humphrey Bogart. It's a 1955 film that is literally using the exterior of the same home from the classic 1950s family sitcom, Leave it to Beaver. Okay? So just imagine Die Hard in the house they used for Leave it to Beaver. It's an absolutely brilliant setup. Uh, Humphrey Bogart here is a lot less, I don't want to say polished, because I don't feel like you could ever apply that word to Humphrey Bogart, but he's a lot less put together. He is the villain of the piece. He's kind of imprisoned this family within their own home. He is kind of the, the ringleader of these two other criminals, one of which is his younger brother. And he looks very hard scrabble. This is him kind of towards the end of his career and the end of his life. He has this incredible five o'clock shadow that's just maintained throughout the whole film. He's uh, smoking a cigar in every other scene. You know, he's really, he's rough Humphrey Bogart. This is not, you know, play it again, Sam, Humphrey Bogart. Right, this is, right. Not Casablanca Humphrey Bogart and also not the Humphrey that we saw for a, an earlier review podcast uh, where he plays a, a military guy, right? He's a, yeah. a Navy captain in uh, the Kane Mutiny. So this is much more like the African Queen, uh, Humphrey Bogart, or the Humphrey Bogart uh, that you would have seen at the very beginning of his career. He played a bunch of gangsters with Cagney. And so it's interesting that he comes back to a gangster character after becoming a worldwide film star. But nobody watches those early gangster pictures, and very few people have heard of The Desperate Hours. But this is a movie that you should watch if you like that setup of all those 80 movies that Die Hard really, you know, set the template for, which is a bunch of people in a closed space, right? Some bad guys, some good guys, some people caught in the middle, and how do they kind of resolve this fight for power in a very tight space, in a very tight time frame, right? The, the best of these movies, I love these movies, uh, are almost done in real time. If you go back and watch the original Die Hard, you know, it's almost in real time. Uh, and The Desperate Hours only happens over about 48 hours of time. It's actually based on something that really happened, and they turn it into a Tony Award-winning play. Oh, right? Before that, it was a novel. It was a novel. Novel, based then on, play, right, then a film. Then a film, which was the old traditional way that things got to film. And uh, I did not realize this until we podcast it this weekend, but the stage, the Tony Award winning production on stage starred Paul Newman, a very young Paul Newman in the Humphrey Bogart role. Uh, so they did have to kind of rewrite things for Humphrey Bogart. But what that means is, and this is why I am pitching this to the dads out there, uh, you know, this becomes this suburban fight between two father figures, right? You've got the the absolutely stereotypical 1950s, like, go to work in a tie, and when he's fighting with the gangsters at midnight, he's still wearing a tie. Yeah. Dad, played by Frederick Marsh, who's a great actor, 
Uh, he appears to be about 75 years old, you know, with a little elementary school son, Ralphie. But, you know, that's the way everybody looked in the 50s. I want to be called Ralph. <laughs> and so you've got Frederick Marsh over here who represents all that is pure and good. And wholesome a, and American. That America is telling itself post-war. in the post-war. Yeah. Post-war. You're like, their, their world is perfect except... For that bike in the front yard. There's a little disorder at the very beginning. You were really bothered by that bike. So there's this piece of set dressing. It's just a piece of set dressing. It has no importance in the plot. My father's like, someone pick up the bike? Because like, that's the whole point of the movie, I think. I mean, it's diehard in suburbia. But the director and the great actors involved use it to talk about, okay, so it's like 1956 now, right? It's 10 years since the end of World War II. And America has started to spread out in suburbia. We've got these people who are, are making a lot of money in industry and business. And they have set this template, right? I mean, you, you go inside this house. Everybody looks like they're in a magazine spread, right? It is absolutely... Uh, Man, there was a joke there with the daughter, but I passed it right by. Yeah, that's good. let it go right okay, by. let it go right I by. I let that go right by. They have a 19-year-old daughter... <laughs> Who's dating a 30-year-old lawyer. Who's dating a 30-year-old lawyer. Like, you're like, you, you pitch this as like, oh, everything is perfect in their little world. Uh, no, the 19-year-old is dating like a 30-year-old lawyer. And there's that bike in the front yard. Because, yeah, and there's that bike. Because the Ralph cannot be controlled. Ralph is, uh, He's real... the future. Ralph is basically a baby boomer, okay? Oh, God, he so is. They're, they're sort of, they're presaging the way our society starts to fight with each other over the meaning of, you know, what is a good family? What is the meaning of America in the 60s, okay? Yeah. So this movie is sort of predicting how things are going to start to come apart. So it's not just Humphrey Bogart and the criminals who are grungy and dirty and uh, uneducated, and they come barging into this home and they take over, but it's also Ralph. Yeah. Well, Ralphie doesn't understand what bravery is what courage is he he sees this as a very short term i mean he's like eight or nine or ten or whatever yeah. but he's he, a cub scout yeah he sees it <laughs> as you know ray guns and spacemen and and it's not he thinks this can be outfought and really it's this is a test of endurance and it's really between the two dads yeah. right so you've got the stereotypical post-war suburban dad against Humphrey Bogart who is basically a father figure to his younger brother because there's such an age difference yeah it's such a huge age difference uh, and it's pretty tough you know both of those men as they tangle with each other as there's this struggle of thinking and wills there are a lot of great lines in this movie uh, between Humphrey and the dad and you know it, at one point in the plot each of them has to consider, giving up, you know, the person that they love. Yeah, to to surrender a bit of their control. Because this is also, and these are the stories that I love also, what do you do when you have power? How do you use it? Yeah. And this is a very great micro example of what do you do when you have power? And both of these father figures have power. And the groups that they have power over begin to kind of shift. It's not, you know, Humphrey just has control over the criminals and, you know, doesn't have any sort of control over the family in terms of just the influence that he can exert. And the father, there are times where his influence kind of rubs off on the younger criminal brother. And you see, you know... Well, it's a fight for power. It's a fight for power. Like some of Humphrey Bogart's ideas about 
masculinity and and what what he thinks should be done in situations rub off on Ralphie a little bit. It's like all great prisoner stories where it is scary how how the how it's almost a two-way street. It is a two-way street. Right, right, the whole Stockholm syndrome yeah. idea. Yeah. Um plus Humphrey uh because he has decided to set up shop in suburbia, he's waiting for money and or his uh, girlfriend to get to him from the east. So there's there's a strategic reason to be set up here instead of to stay on the run. But what that then allows is all of this negotiation back and forth because he keeps letting members of the hostage family go out and come back, right? Which is pretty fascinating. That doesn't happen in a lot of the 1980s Die Hard type movies. Um, but here it's kind of fascinating because there is some action and movement, right? It's not all just trapped within the house. So that's a way that the movie is probably different from the play. You know, somebody dies in a way that you really can't show on stage. Yeah, okay, so spoilers <laughs> for a movie that's like 60 years old. The younger brother, Hal, at one point, he's like, he's kind of just kind of disgusted with this whole thing, and he's pretty much ready to call it quits. And so he's like, well, I'm taking off. I'm taking one of the cars with me. I've got a gun. I've got some money. And Humphrey... Let's him go. It takes a lot, but Humphrey says, well, you know. Let's be specific. Humphrey gives him the cash and uh, lets him take the gun as a clear moment of like, okay, you know, this younger brother is basically saying, I'm an adult. I'm going to make my own decisions. And that's, of course, a very tough moment for parents. Spoiler alert. And he has to let the younger brother go out into the night. And, you know, you, there's a great scene of him at the back kitchen door letting the brother go to his own fate. And that fails spectacularly. <laughs> so Hal lasts about five seconds out in the world by himself. He, like, sticks someone up, rides in the passenger seat of a car to a diner, where they're serving steaks, by the way. Which my father and I were just kind of flabbergasted that this diner is serving steaks. Steaks! It says on the window, flashing in neon. Steaks! Like, it's, it's not saying, like, savory steaks or steaks until midnight. It's just steaks! steaks. It's like, okay, we gotcha. So, like, of course, there are two state patrolmen who go yeah, in to get sta steaks! Like, because it's, like, 3 a.m. And, they, they and, and, you know, it's time for some meat. And, like, <laughs> they come in and Hal doesn't, like, keep his cool or, like, try and, like... You know, be like, oh, I'm going to, you know, put his collar up and try and sneak out of the joint. Instead, he shoots one of the state troopers in the belly. Completely unprovoked. Runs out of the diner, gets blasted in the back, in the middle of the road, and then gets crushed by an 18-wheeler. Yes, they're showing this in the 1956 It is film. like a Mortal Kombat fatality. <laughs> and all you see are like, because they, because it is still artsy. It is, I'm sorry, not artsy. It's, it's still It's the 50s. It's still tasteful. It's still, like, you're not going to see, like, there's no blood in this movie. There's not a single, I mean, yeah. someone gets a cut on their forehead at one point. So you don't, like, he gets underneath the 18 wheeler and all you see are his legs, like, just like gestating as this thing <laughs> runs over him. And I'm like, that's almost worse. I don't, oh, I don't want to see this. Like, yeah. and they hold that shot. Like, the 18 wheeler comes to a stop and his legs stop moving. And you're like, oh, oh, that's going to be a rough one for the coroner. So, that's what I love about these older movies is what you give up in kind of the modern CGI and, and, so, and color. And color and, you know, some of the language that you get now. Uh, you know, back then, they're still talking about real stuff and they're showing things <clears throat> in the way that they were able to so that they still have emotional impact. So now, I would love to take a few minutes to talk about the greatest Hollywood director you've never heard of. I'm going to be over here eating an apple. Hey, 
The Desperate Hours is directed by William Wyler, who is second on the all-time list for winners of the Best Directing Oscar because he has three. Oh, my God. The guy won Best Director Oscar three times, second only to John Ford, okay? He directed 31 different actors into Oscar-nominated roles, okay? So over decades of his career... 31 different people got to an Oscar nomination because of his direction of them. Holy cow. He was nominated for the Best Director Oscar 12 times, and that is a record. 12 times. Oh, my God. (laughs) Now, some of the stuff that he's nominated for and wins for is too old for me to recommend to modern audiences. You know, some of the stuff in the 40s really is pretty, it's cutesy, it just doesn't translate well. But by the time we get into the late 50s, you know, there's a little more leeway, and he is starting to talk about things. Like, in this movie... Humphrey Bogart is really talking about class warfare, okay? It's, yeah, a lot. It's not just sort of the disorder that they bring into He's the house. He's got like two monologues about, you know, you people up here with your clean living and your cigars and your wine, you make me sick. Right, exactly. And he's talking to his younger brother, you know, who's who's got eyes for the 19-year-old daughter. He's like, you know, these people don't care about you. When it kind of escalates, when the tensions between them escalate, he flips it. He says, you don't understand them you know this life that you're all googly-eyed for you're never going to have it this isn't something that's for you this is for them and then we're over here yeah yeah and so what's beautiful is as things start to break in the house i mean literally one of the criminals is like six foot four he's just a goliath okay and you know they're they're smashing liquor bottles and they're smashing uh radios and that stuff stays on the set okay by the end the disorder is all over the house. Although, you know, there's a happy ending to this, it's clear that the director, William Wyler, is making a point about how this suburbia that looks so perfect on the outside really is just a piece of propaganda. Yeah. And so, it won't hold up under even the slightest pressure. Correct. Um, you know, the, the, the main hero, the, our pops, the father of the family... It's quite clear that he has in him a level of vengeance and anger that he didn't have before this situation. Yeah, in some ways, you know, I'm pitching this as Die Hard in Leave it to Beaver's House, but you know what? It's also like an early version of all those Liam Neeson movies. Oh my God, absolutely. I was getting some serious Taken vibes here. Because like at one point, Humphrey says, you know, like they're, they're facing down. They've both got guns. Yeah. And Humphrey just says, you know, you don't. You ain't got it in you. And the yeah. father says, "Yeah, I do. You put it there." Like, that's the line of the film. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really interesting to notice that some of the concerns that we have in our our real world today were also concerns they or things that we should be picking up on even then, like the police. When they show up to this standoff, to this siege, yeah. they are armed to the frickin'. Yeah. So the militarization of the police is something that we've been talking a lot about in the news these days. But make no mistake, 1950s cops show up to a siege with Tommy guns. Like, they are and, not... And tear and, gas. And, and, oh, my God. Of, well, you know. because just like cops now have all of this uh, military gear that's, you know, been used in Iraq, right? I mean, this is the surplus from our most recent long-running war. It's the same thing in the 50s, right? They had all this stuff left over from World War II. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yes, I mean, that's sort of the joke at the end, but also the dramatic tension is they stop the father, right? He's gone out. He's trying to solve this problem to get Humphrey to leave the house. And he comes back. He's got a wad of cash uh, that Humphrey's been waiting on. And the uh, law enforcement people have encircled his house, and they literally won't let him get back to the house. So there's a scene up in an attic of a neighboring house where he has to basically bargain with the law enforcement. And it's a scene you've seen hundreds of times in these action cop movies, you know, where the cops are all like, we'll take it from here, right? Like, you don't know what you're doing. And of course, it's the dad saying, well, uh, but if you go in guns blazing, you know, it's my child and my wife in there, right? I'm, I'm, I've got people in there that are worth taking an unusual risk for. Yeah. Uh, so it's a sophisticated movie in that it's talking about things that other 1950s media was not talking about and that a lot of you know, TV shows and movies don't get around to until the late 70s or 80s. It's very interesting because the local police are not actually portrayed in a very positive light. They are you know, portrayed as being able to rough people up, being willing to rough people up. Yeah. For very slight offenses, you know, like the lawyer, the 30-year-old lawyer who's dating the 19-year-old who, you know, I have very little sympathy for, he approaches one of the cops and within about 30 seconds of him opening his mouth, that cop is like, get out of here, I'll arrest you for obstruction. Like, yeah, you I'll know. bust you in the jaw and he's like, you can't arrest me. You know, it's, it's The lawyer seems to be the only person who knows like, hey, maybe we shouldn't be acting like this. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, and that's just kind of fascinating to see in, in a film made at this time. But you know who really comes off as professional and intelligent and who takes all this very seriously is the FBI agent assigned to this case. Who may or may not be Benedict Cumberbatch's His facial structure is so close. It's amazing. (laughs) So he says something that no FBI agent has ever said to any policeman in any film ever, which is... Well, you're the lead on this case, so I'll defer to your expertise. Yeah, I love right. that. That was right. great. And then well, when they're well, having that scene in the attic, he's the one who says, uh, I think we should let him go in. You know, we should. Right, right. He's the one who stops like the local sheriff. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who says, no, we're going to let him go in. And if he fails, we'll go in guns blazing. But, yeah. you know, we'll give him his shot. So here's another thing I really like about the movie is in a more modern picture, you know, they kind of do this setup where Humphrey... Uh, is in this area, this suburbia, because he does kind of have another goal. He's not just waiting for money, but he's got a little revenge motive against the local cop who put him in jail, right? So that's a pretty standard setup. And so in another kind of movie, you would expect there would be this big showdown and they'd be battling it out at the end and guns, you know, all this stuff. And that never happens. No. He and that cop never come blow to blow. No. Because what happens is we start to focus on the father of the house versus Humphrey Bogart, right? That's the dramatic fight. Uh, the cop never comes face-to-face with Humphrey Bogart in the movie. I love that yeah, because that's much more realistic than what we normally get. Yeah, no, he never comes face-to-face with him. And he's. it's just so interesting because they devote so much screen time to this manhunt as well that's going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, and I like... Details like that. They're they're very specific about the geography, which I think is really cool. Yes, they mentioned Circleville, Ohio. They mentioned Circleville, baby. They (laughs) mentioned Columbus. Uh, They mentioned Pittsburgh. And all this is taking place in the bustling modern city of Indianapolis. (laughs) And what's fun, though, is although they're tracking that, 
you know, again, because it's a 50s movie, they don't have a budget for that. A lot of this is, you know, backlot Hollywood filming. Humphrey never leaves the house. No. Once he goes into the house, he never leaves till the very end. Climax, right? I mean, like... Humphrey's contract said he only had to film for three weeks. <laughs> and there he is in the house. No. Um... <laughs> I mean, and and there are some, but there are some like action action sequences that really surprised me in this. Uh, for example, like the six four guy at one point jumps into the back of a flatbed truck yeah. and then crawls over the top of it as it's speeding down the road and slides into the the passenger side door. And yeah. it's a pretty incredible maneuver for a guy of his size. And, um, and then they do something with that truck. That, yeah, you know, they, there's no CGI to that. Yeah, no, that truck is. <laughs> there was a there was a real person who had to really bail out of that truck. Yeah. So it's fascinating to see what was considered, you know, action and and stunt work at that time. Because, you know, we've come compare and contrast this to what we watched, you know, on Friday night where we went to go see Infinity War. Mm -hmm. And I feel, not to go off on an Infinity War tangent, but this movie, The Desperate Hours, has far more physical and emotional consequence. Yes. Bigger is not necessarily better. This thing has a cast of maybe ten people. Yeah, to the and, speaking parts, yeah. And it is brilliant. You know who each of these people are. You know what motivates them. And it's it's what we love, which is the human ant farm and what happens yes. when you shake it. Right, exactly. I love shaking the ant farm. So uh, all kinds of props to the director, William Wyler. Oh, yeah, um, he kills it. Some of the other stuff uh, that he did. Speaking of action, you know, he directed Ben-Hur. There's some really interesting camera work in this that we haven't talked about. He does at one point something I've never seen in a film from this era, which is a first-person camera shot. Yeah. He has, when Humphrey and his goons are pulling into the driveway for the first time, mm -hmm. it is a point-of-view shot from Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. It is supposed to be his eyes that you are looking through. Well, and when we do get to the ending where the cops are all around the house, he does a bunch of shots where you've got the cops in the foreground. Uh, and then you can clearly see, like, they're in a set somewhere, but he's filmed that house, the Leave it to Beaver house. Somebody, like the dad walking up to the front door. And it plays really well. It he, plays like it's one live shot, which it's not. He plays with a lot of angles as well. There's a lot of scenes, I think there's two or three scenes in this film, where a member of the family is interacting with somebody outside the family, outside the house, and a member of the criminal gang is right behind the door yes. to threaten them, to yeah. not say or let on that anything is wrong. So physical proximity, these criminals with guns are inches away from these outsiders. Right. But from the outsider's point of view, all they see is their neighbor who's barely opened the door a crack. Right, right. And that is awesome. You got that like two or three times, and I never got sick of it because it's always tense. You never know who's going to screw up in this equation. <laughs> right. So that's the human ant farm and, and why I love these closed situations. I mean, it's why I love 12 Angry Men. It's why I love Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat. It's why I love Die Hard. You know, the, the physical proximity does make humans behave differently, right? That is the threat. You th we talk about personal space, so that's how you throw somebody off, is getting in their personal space. And that's what you really don't get in the big cosmic epics of a Marvel movie, right? I love those because they are literally bringing comic books into the film realm. And so, you know, watching the planet come alive in Guardians 2, okay, that's really cool. But there's not the emotional impact you get from something that's clearly based on a stage production. 
right? <laughs> you can tell that this movie was a play. Yeah. You yeah. can tell that Inherit the Wind was a play because you have to use that physical proximity to get to the drama. Indeed. So Weiler's brilliant. Uh, some of the other stuff that he's done, he did a kind of splashy epic for its day. Ben-Hur, very famous action scene with the chariot race. Oh, yeah. He films that. But he also does our favorite Audrey Hepburn movie, Roman Holiday. Yeah, Roman Holiday. Okay, he does all kinds of beautiful things that you may love, but you don't know the name William Wyler. Seek him out and watch The Desperate Hours. Yep. Yes, indeed. It's a great film. It's totally in the canon. We are giving this our stamp. This has absolutely earned its place. It's still there. Go watch The Desperate Hours. It's really all about domestic terrorism. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's really impressive because I think Humphrey Bogart always only says dame maybe once or twice. And you can tell. <laughs> he's like fighting his instincts. like, don't call them all dames. Don't call them all dames. I have to get in there and make, get your dame to make us a chicken. And it's like, ah, damn it. Dame just slips out. Yeah. Uh, again. Uh, Not I... too many of the Humphrey mannerisms are in here. I was really... That was going to be my test. I really, because you grow up knowing who Humphrey Bogart is if you love film and you know all of these stereotypes and jokes about his roles. And I was yeah. really worried that Desperate Hours was going to slot right in there. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's a very complicated role for him. And the one or two times where he does something that might remind you of a Casablanca or an African queen, it's in a totally different context, you mm. know? So. Yeah, I, when I saw this movie 20 years ago, 25 years ago... How did ago, you first see this? I just saw it because I knew it was Humphrey Bogart and Did you Weiler. check it out from the library? Did yeah. you go to like a cinema? Or? Nope, nope, just okay. checked it out, was watching it. This is what I was doing while you were taking naps as a two-year-old. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. So Those I, lasted 15 minutes. Hey, now. Now I'll sleep for four hours if you give it a chance. Like, oh my God, naps? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm really happy you didn't sleep through this one. Success for the podcast! Indeed. Thank you guys very much. I've been Samuel. And I'm still Bentley. And this is the Review Podcast. Podcast.